Hello and welcome to Brotherly Game Roundtable. I'm Matt Routh, editor of BrotherlyGame.com. I'm joined here with three uh, pretty special guests here tonight. Greg is a contributor to Brotherly Game. We've got two, uh, two other guests with us. I'm going to have them introduce themselves. We'll start with you, Greg, uh, one of our uh, new rock star contributors to Brotherly Game. Welcome, everybody. I'm Greg Oldfield. I just started writing with uh, Brotherly Game this, this summer, uh, starting with this story and then um, I've been writing a little bit of some of the game stories over the last couple uh, weeks with the union. So uh, pretty excited about everything that we're doing and um, thrilled with the opportunity to be able to write this story and talk to the individuals involved. Bob? My name is uh, Bob Wilkinson. I'm the head coach at uh, Moravian College. Uh, this would have been my uh, third season there as the head coach. Uh, I appreciate uh, Greg writing this article. It brought back a lot of good memories and glad to be here with my uh, teammate, Jamie, as well. And my name is Jamie McGrady. I'm currently the head girls soccer coach at Eastern High School in Voorhees, South Jersey. Um, played collegially at what was then called Glassboro State College, which is now Rowan University, and then had an opportunity to play with Wilk here and, and a bunch of other great players over at UGH. So uh, it's going to be fun to talk about some of those memories. Yeah, so we kind of have a, a, a New Jer a South Jersey, Pennsylvania thing going on here and a little lot, lots of crossover in between. So uh, I, I told Jamie I I'm wearing my Voorhees Soccer Association shirt uh, because I lived in Gibbsboro and played there for a little bit. Uh, actually, my only success in my soccer career was when I played for a team when I was nine or ten and we won the championship over, <laughs> over, over in Voorhees. So. Uh, so that's the extent of my <laughs> my, uh, my career highlights. But um, Greg, starting with you, you know what what made you want us to write this article, and 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 not just write an article about you know the experience of being there when you're you know a 12 year old kid, but what you know going into this and, and doing a whole series uh, series of articles on this. Um, I mean, I think I really started getting serious about writing about 10 years ago, and the story was always in the back of my mind as something that I wanted to write about. Um, it was a unique experience. You got to see, at that time, the U.S. national team play, you know, 20 feet away from you, which just something that doesn't happen anymore. Um, and then the other cool part was, you know, when I got to watch players like, like Bobby and, and, you know, Jamie, and I got to meet some of these guys, you know, with my own amateur career, and I got to know them. This game was always sitting there. Um, like, hey, wow, like I watched you guys play against the U.S. national team. So it was always something that I wanted to write about. Um, and, and the more I got to meet everybody, the more I got to tell their stories, what was cool about this was that the story just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, you know, I think I sent you my final draft was something like 7,300 words, you know, which is a long story. And I honestly cut it off. You know, like I could have kept going and going like this story could have been three or four times um, the size of it. And it wouldn't have and it would have been, you know, the quality would have been there because all these guys that I didn't get to talk to had fascinating stories. And it's just um, a really unique time, a really unique place where you have these great players and this specific era that was in between the pro leagues. And to me, that's that's fascinating. You know, there's just, there's so many things about the story that, that just got better the more I wrote it. Um, you know, and writers talk about a story growing and kind of taking legs. And this was very much it. Like, this is a story that kept, it kept getting bigger and it kept getting better. Um, and it, and it, if I didn't stop it, it would have kept going. Um, and that was the cool part. And that's, um, 
So it was, it was an honor to talk to the, everybody. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm sad that I didn't get to talk to some people. And, um, you know, maybe down the road, if this, this story um, becomes something bigger, which I think it very well could be, um, I'll be able to get a lot more stories and a lot of these backgrounds and how everybody came together in this unique time and place. Um, so that was kind of what was most interesting to me about writing it. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually, I never, I never, I didn't know anything about this game until uh, Greg's brother Rob was doing a newsletter uh, and was doing a series, you know, kind of during the pandemic of, you know, just kind of stories about different players, like kind of the history of VE. And he, and it came up in one of the bios. Yeah, I, I was like, wait, what? UGH played the U.S. Men's National Team, before, like, you know, what was it, two months or a month, month and a half or whatever, before they went to the Italy World Cup. I mean, and, 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 and there was something with that is, like, the 1990 World Cup was such a big thing because, you know, we automatically – we had already qualified for World, World Cup 1994 by hosting it, right? And so this idea that the U.S. team – actually qualified on their own without just, you know, getting the cup. Because, I mean, if you think about historically, you know, the, the idea that like, oh, the U.S. got in because they got it, like that doesn't, see, you know, that doesn't seem <laughs> fair, right? And, um, you know, that's going to happen the next World Cup, of course, where the team didn't, you know, qualify beforehand. But, Bob, you know, when you kind of, you know, the, this, this anniversary comes up in May, the 30 years of that game. I mean, were you thinking about it and then, or was like kind of Greg contacting you like, Oh, this starts to starts to jar the memories of, of that night. No, I didn't realize that it was you 30 years, but uh, when Greg uh, obviously talked to anytime the game came up, there's always a story or two uh, about how it happened and how could it have happened? You know, an amateur squad, uh, you know, ends up playing the, the national team before they go to the world cup. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of something that Greg had put on uh, my radar. Rob had mentioned it to me as well as brother, and then uh, and then he finally made the call. So, and Jamie, you know, you were in the game as well. I mean, is this something? That, did you, did you realize like, oh, this is an anniversary, or did, does like is it something that kind of comes up at, at, when you see friends or like or people who are on the team? Like, where what's kind of uh, your uh, your experience with this sort of memory of this game? My situation was a little different, and, and I was kind of like an outsider. Um, Steve Wink, who had played for UGH already, would need, they said they needed a forward to come over, a big four that could win in the air and stuff like that. So he had actually recruited me to come over, and when I came over, I didn't know anybody because um, I think Wink and I were the only guys from South Jersey at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that was a new experience in playing with all those guys. Um, so I really don't see guys other than weird things like this where you kind of cross paths. So the only one I really see is Wink, and we actually just ran into each other for the first time in years um, a couple weeks ago, and we actually talked about that game. Um, that's the first time I had thought about it, except when I saw, saw the article on Twitter, and I was like, wow, I can't remember. I forgot all about that. That was so great. So it's neat when things come back around and, and cycle through and you get to relive some of these things. Greg, so, so talk us through how you kind of actually went about doing the article. I mean – uh, again, you had the sort of the personal experience, which you didn't you didn't put a lot in the, uh, the personal experience into it, but it certainly informed your you know understanding of the game and the significance of it. Uh, but how how did you kind of approach it, and 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 what what were some of the decisions you made early on to to kind of try to frame the story or to to figure out the right way to tell uh, tell this story? Um, 
I mean, in the beginning, when I talked to Bob, we kind of, you know, we sort of talked for a while. It was almost like a pre-interview, you know, where I was sort of just picking his brain, like, you know, where, where should I go with this? Um, you know, we talked for a while about um, just certain parts of the game, you know, just reliving certain stories. And, um, you know, from there, I sort of went after, you know, a couple of guys that I, that I, that I kind of knew. I had contacts with some of the guys already. Like, I knew Serbin from, from VE. Um, you know, Steve, I knew his kids from VE. So there was like a connection there. Um, you know, but then as, as you kind of go through, you know, like Neil, I knew as well. Neil, I had played against as well. Um, you know, then, then all of a sudden, you know, Bob's like, oh, you know, we had this guy, Rommel, you know, and it's like, Rommel, like, he's one of those guys that totally just like escaped me, you know, I, I, I couldn't even think that he was involved in this game, you know, and then obviously Vermees, he just, he just missed it by a week, you know, and I didn't know he played for V until I was kind of going back and looking at some of the, some of the, or sorry, UGH. Sorry, Bob, that was a slip. Um, <laughs> when, when you go back uh, looking at some of the UGH history, you know, you're like, oh, Peter Vermees played there, you know? And it's like, wow. So, I mean, after I talked to Bob, you know, I, I did about four weeks of research, you know, I'm just researching things every day. I mean, um, I spent literally four days ta- looking up uh, Hanvid stuff, you know, when I got to Vermees, I mean, it was just like, wow looking up all the stuff from Hungary and, you know, all these travels and all these old interviews that even his dad had done back in like 90 when, you know, they were getting ready for the World Cup. You know, when I talked to Bob and he was telling me about his dad and playing for the Ulrich Truckers, you know, I spent a day messing around just reading old Ulrich Truckers lineups and old stories. And it's like, so that's what I was saying. Like the story just continued to grow, you know, which was, which was amazing. Um, so I kind of went from there and then, you know, at some point I had to make that decision, like, all right, I got to start writing this thing, you know? Um, but I, to me, I felt, always felt like the story kind of focused around the Wilkinsons and the Frickers, you know, just the tradition that they have at this club. Um, they were the ones that have always kind of brought this club to, you know, just, just a, a high standard, you know, for decades. Um, and, and a lot of that, you know, I've been around a lot of other amateur clubs where you sort of have a couple good years here and there, and then the core leaves. And, you know, UGH was different. I mean, really from 65 on to like the present, they've always had good teams. You know, they've always been able to bring in new players. Um, you know, and that starts with the Frickers and it continues with the Wilkinsons, you know, and it, and it continues and it still continues to this day. So they were kind of my centerpiece. And then I sort of went out from there and then, um, you know, like I said, at some point it was just getting so big. I, I, you know, I just had to at some point just say, okay, I got to write this thing, you know, let's, let's start telling it. Um, but that was kind of the approach. Great. And Bob, you know, you're, you're you know, this is a family, this is a family thing for you, right? This, this club and being involved. And, and you, when you think about, um, you know, your dad and, 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 you know, just everything that's this kind of like, you know, like Greg just mentioned, I mean, your family, the Fricker family, um, and, and, and the, the, the history of this club, um, you know, what is it, you know, you know, when you kind of see, see Greg kind of drawing some attention to that, you know, our site kind of putting some attention on that, um, you know, what does that mean to you to kind of like have that recognized, like the, the, the history and your family's involvement in that history? No, it really means a lot. You know, uh, my dad uh, played it. German-Hungarians, I guess, in the uh, you know, early and mid-60s. Uh, 64, they lost the Amateur Cup final uh, out in St. Louis. In 65, they won the, uh, the Amateur Cup, uh, National Amateur Cup in, uh, at home at, uh, at UGH. So 
Uh, my dad also ran two teams there in 1970s, or the same team uh, in 1976. They made it to the amateur and open final uh, and ended up losing both games. Um, for me, I played there since I was like six years old. So I only took a couple years off to play at Lighthouse Boys Club when I was like 17, 18. Um, and then went back. The first game I played for the majors, I was probably 18 years old. So, and probably the last one I played, I was about 40. Uh, and I pretty much played straight through. I was 25 when we played the national team. But what was interesting is when I was like 18, 19, played on those teams, the first year I like, did a full season there, we went 0, 11, and 3. So, a winless season at UGH, that's, uh, that's hard to comprehend to a lot of the, the club members for sure. So, uh, we progressively got better through the college years. My dad retired from LaSalle in 1987 and then Warner Fricker came to him and asked him to take over the team in 1988 and that's what we had a big influx of players we had a, a very good team at LaSalle at the time and uh, a big a large number of those guys went and signed at UGH and then slowly we started picking up guys uh, we got Winker we got Jamie we got Mike Serbin to come over we picked up Neil Smart John Raynard and then all of a sudden we were like wow we're competing for everything so literally from going from 19... 83 and not winning a game to play in the national team in 1990 was, you know, hard to fathom really. Uh, Jamie, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned that you're kind of the outsider. You're the Jersey guy. What did you think of this team when you got involved in playing with them? And, and, and what, uh, what was it about this, this, this group of, of people that made them, you know, so, so successful? One of the things like, it was funny because we had a, we have a pretty competitive league over here at the time in South Jersey. Um, but we didn't really play a fall season. Um, and I had finished, obviously, playing college, and, and Wink gave me this opportunity to come over, and, and I jumped at it. And, and the first thing I found when I got there, the level of play was so good. Um, like everybody knows, that there was no professional league at the time for guys to play. So there was a lot of guys that we played every week or played on the same field. They were extremely talented players. Um, and, and it was just a fun time, fun, fun atmosphere. Um, you know, just a great opportunity to continue playing at a high level you know, given that there was no professional league really to aspire to. So um, I think that's from our point of view as a competitor, it was just a way to continue my college career after my college career ended, just to keep playing. Uh, there weren't people covering this game, right? So sort of one of those things where you had this, you know, you had this league, like you said, Jamie, it's like playing, people playing at a high level. I mean, you look, you look on the roster, like Greg was sending me some other stuff too, like from like the amateur cup stuff and everything. It's like, you know, these are, you know, these are guys that were, you know, you, you had quality teams. And like you said, Jamie, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a pro league for, for them to play in. Right. So, uh, th but this was an opportunity for play, for guys to keep playing. And, and obviously that, that still exists today. And I think that's an, that's an aspect of the soccer that, that, I, you know, I've kind of fallen in love with through the open cup to me that, that that's, that's a, that's a fascinating sort of through line as well that, you know, that, uh, there wasn't anything else, but but because that was established, we we continue to have the USLPA that that has all these teams that are competing, and there's that that kind of that history involved in that. Um, Greg, when you when you kind of look at you know you mentioned you mentioned some of the names, and I think for me when I read Steve Rommel, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the first MLS guy I ever interviewed. Um, you know, I was working uh, for the South Jersey Times, and I was doing some, doing some coverage, some different things. And, uh, actually it was when, when MLS announced they were going to try to put a stadium in down in Rowan. 
And I was like, okay, who's 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 played in MLS that's from the area I could talk to? And I, uh, you know, called up called up Steve and talked to him. Uh, you know, as a West Deptford guy. Um, but when you when you kind of when you kind of look at those names, like you know, what is that? Um, you know, someone who who went on to have like you you know you mentioned you went on to have a, a good career yourself playing uh, playing at Penn State and you're still involved in the game you know what uh you know what is that you know what was that like for you to kind of see and sort of like kind of uncover some of these these connections I mean honestly it's like when you when you look at Rommel's story it's like man I wish I would have known the guy 30 years ago you know like I I could have easily tried to follow his path you know like he had such a unique experience and he told me some fascinating things and not all of it made it into the story um some of the some of the things that happened with him you know sort of happened um so long ago they were covered back in the 90s and you know during this transition but he told me like a really fascinating story about you know when he was at dc and they brought him in i mean just the fact that they brought him in hey like he was sitting in a bar hey, you're starting Saturday, get down here. You know, we got to get you to play. It's just like, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, I mean, that was just such a unique experience. And, you know, he was one of those guys that I get the sense that he was always on the cusp as far as like the national team. And he really had to work hard to get to where he was. And UGH sort of helped him get there. You know, like he said it, but also I kind of got the feeling just from following his story. Um, He might not have made it to that level, without playing with the guys that he played with at UGH. Um, and that was kind of, you know, something that maybe helped get him to the next level. The other thing that was really interesting with him is when he was with DC and he was having an incredible year, breakout year, they brought in Jaime Moreno like halfway through the year. And Bruce Arena pulled him aside and said, look, we just signed a great player. And the other guy, Raul Diaz Arce, puts 5,000 people in the stands. And he's like, you put your mom and dad in the stands. So that's it. Um, and that was sort of like his place, you know, like arena told him, this is your place. And man, like, I, I don't know how you hear that. And then like, then go out and perform after that, you know, and he still had a great end of the year. He had some big goals in that, in that spring, but I felt like that was sort of like his career. Like he was kind of like, maybe looked looked at as like, he couldn't be good enough. And he really had to push himself and earn himself and earn his uh, spots. And I, I felt like, going back to UGH, there was a good tie in there because I felt like he learned some of that playing with the guys that he played with. They were older than him. They pushed him, you know, they didn't care that he was a, you know, uh, an all American. They didn't care that he was about to finish second in the Herman trophy his senior year at Rutgers. You know, they, they treated him the same way that, you know, we would treat any other teammate. And I think that was pretty unique with Rama. So Bob, you're, you're, you're head coach at Moravian. Now you, you were assistant for a number of years at LaSalle you know, being involved in the game all these years later, um, you know, what, what is it about, about the game and about, you know, being involved in the sport and, and, and was there, did your time at UGA sort of inspire you to kind of continue to be involved in soccer the way that you are? It starts with my dad, obviously. He started, uh, he became the head coach of the sound in 1969. So I was four at the time. So I basically, Grew up on the soccer field of the South from basically 1969 to uh, 1983 when I was looking at a couple of different schools. I ended up going to the South, so that carries forth there. So I was always around the game, always around the coach. Uh, you know, I just love being around my dad. My brother played, obviously, he's five years older, and then he went to the South and so on and so forth. So I was always around my big brother. 
so that's the story. And, you know, when we were a UGH family as well. So, uh, so we were a LaSalle family, we were a UGH family. Um, when uh, my dad was done coaching, which was probably, you know, probably just after that national team game, uh, maybe he coached another year or two at UGH, my brother had taken over the team. And then my brother ran the team to about 95. And then actually I ran the team. That team was turned over to me then uh, in 1995 and tried to keep it going. So, so it was just a little bit of like a natural progression, always around the game, always around coaching. You know, like uh, we talked about soccer at the dinner table every day. At that time, that's probably not common amongst most kids uh, of the uh, 70s and 80s. But for me, it was a part of everyday life. So uh, stayed involved in the game is just, it was just kind of something I guess I, I knew I would always do. It's funny, like I, I didn't, being from South Jersey, I didn't understand the history of all the clubs over there. I really, when I went over there, it was just, I was a hired gun. I went over, played, got back in my car, went back over the bridge. And honestly, it wasn't until this game where, you know, we started, I started learning the history of the clubs and, and how it's set up over there and such how, how they, they have such a rich history of soccer and it goes so far back. We don't have that over here in South Jersey. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, you know, but at that point in my career, I just wanted to, I just enjoyed the game. I loved playing. And it was just another place for me to go play. And like I said, I didn't understand the depth of what they had going over there. For me at the time, I was just out of college. I just wanted to keep playing. And that was an op- opportunity for me to do that. So, you know, I relished the opportunity to play and get to play with some, some guys who I never had a chance to play with, who were, who were at high level and, and had the same intensity for the game that I did. So I think I took that out of it more than anything else and, and obviously learning the history of, of the clubs and what we accomplished. So uh, it, was, it was a fun ride. Greg, Greg mentioned, and, and I think it was probably the first, maybe the first part of the second part, maybe it was the second part, about, you know, kind of placing it in the, in the, in the history in terms of where, where soccer was at the time, right? You know, it's like, you know, the, the, as we said, you know, the, the U.S. hadn't qualified for a World Cup for, you know, since, you know, forever, uh, since for, before any of us were born. And, and now, you know, they had an opportunity to qualify to go to Italy. Uh, you know, they, they made a really goofy video uh, that's kind of funny to watch <laughs> now uh, about it. But, you know, in terms of where soccer was then, um, you know, it was basically non-existent. Um, I mean, I, I played soccer. I was a fan of soccer, but there was no way for me to really be into soccer aside from going to practice and games, right? So um, to me, like, that's that's kind of the big thing that's shifted and changed. But it's also, like Greg, like you mentioned, Greg, this this idea of, like, building blocks, right? And- I think what's, what's unique about this period of time is, you know, those early 80s, the, NSA, the NSAL was kind of falling apart. You know, so here you had this huge league with, you know, getting players from all over the place, you know, all the stars were coming, but the league was in shambles, you know, and a lot of these guys were entering their prime during that time, you know, so this was like a really critical time because when the NS, the NASL collapses, you know, if these guys aren't playing and training hard and, and, you know, doing what they did at the amateur level, there's like a bigger gap between that transition from the professional leagues, you know, MLS, when they started, they had like 12 teams. They were pulling guys right out of college. They were scrambling to get guys from other countries. You know, Um, a lot of the guys who played in this game on the UGH side would have been a part of MLS if it had started sooner, you know, like there would have been more of these guys in these rosters. Um, 
But even for a long time, we didn't have that development period. You know, now we have the academies. You know, before it was college to pro, but when you entered pro, you weren't really a part of the program. You were kind of on a different team owned by a different organization, you know? So there was no development for those post-college players. Um, and, and it, you know, if there was, if we had, to, you know, today, what, if they, these guys had back then what we have today, these guys would have moved right into the union too. They would have been on, you know, MLS, you know, teams. Um, and that's a critical point, you know, like if these guys didn't do what they did and Warner Fricker didn't push for what he wanted, um, it could have been another 20 or 30 years until we saw like a, a viable national team or a competitive league. So it was, I don't know. I think it was, I think it was a pretty important part of that, 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 that movement. Bob, you know, how do you, how do you kind of look at that in terms of the, you know, where, where soccer has gone, you know, since, since, since 1990. It was uh, incredible. It's changed so much, even, you know, as a division one player or, or really any, any of the divisions, a lot of the guys would sign, you know, it wasn't like a year round thing uh, at the division one schools. When you were done in November, let's say you were free and clear. So most of the players were all signed to either, you know, UGH, Erskeberg, Ukrainians, um, FC Bayern, all those teams were looking for the best college of kids around and they would kind of recruit them and sign them as soon as the season was over. So that's where we really had our development. You could be 19 years old, finishing your college season, and within a week you could be playing on Sunday again against guys that are 25, 30 international players. And it was such a key, I think, piece for us to develop at that time. Now, like you said, what you have with the academies and so on and so forth, this year-round training, it's, it's really changed so, so much. You know, uh, the idea of people having their own stadiums instead of sharing a stadium like the Adams did and the Fury did, you know, with the vet, you know, to be able to play in your own place and do all that, it's just incredible. So uh, it's a whole different world. These jobs, my dad was a part-time coach at LaSalle. Well, you know, now everything's full-time coaching. I'm coaching D3 and it's a full-time position, you know, uh, as are you know, so many other jobs there. So my dad would uh, go to work all day, leave work early, use vacation time, get to LaSalle 3.30, coach practice, go home, have dinner, go back to sleep, start it all over again, and did that from August through November. So it's, I mean, like, what a world. <laughs> I think the, the one thing I always think about is what if, the, what if we had Twitter? What if we had internet back <laughs> when this game was played? Um, you figure that stadium was full through word of mouth. Um, a game like that had it happened today would have been all over the world, you know, and it would just because it was such a unique experience for everybody, for them and us. But I, I, I know having coached the girls, I think back to when I grew up, I was never really taught much individual skill. Um, most of the coach I had growing up were, were guys that donated their time. That most of them had never played the game before. Um, so I was pretty much self-taught. I was very athletic, but my skill level was, was not at a very high level. Um, I just had a knack for scoring. But had I had the opportunity, some of these kids have with the training growing up, you know, who knows what would have happened. And I see that with our girls. And I tell them all the time, you guys, I was an All-American. And I tell the girls, you guys are so much better than I was even when I was in college at, at a high school level. The things they can do with the ball, I could never do with the ball back then. Um, it, it has really changed. It's It's Change in many ways for the better. Obviously, there's some things you could probably want to do a little different the way the game is set up now. But um, I think they have a wonderful opportunity. If they want to put effort into it, opportunities are there for them. And, and at that time, 
like we talked about, we didn't really have an opportunity to go any further at that particular time. And, and that's something I look back and I really, what if, you know, it's one of those, what if there was an opportunity, you know, where, where would we be doing now? So, um, it, but the game has certainly changed a lot and, and for the better. It's 1990. What is the U.S. men's national team in 1990? I mean, the, when you told people you were playing them, what what was sort of the reaction at the time? I mean, it was, I mean, it was still an incredible, you know, for us. You know, we knew who they were, obviously, uh, but not everyone else. So it was an incredible, like, just opportunity or, or yeah, I guess opportunity is the right word, uh, to be able to play against the, the best players in the country at the time. Um, the thing that's interesting with, with that team – uh, which affects Steve, but and, and maybe even helped us in the game is, is we're probably older than that team, uh, the German Hungarians. Well, still relatively young, we're twenty five to twenty seven. A lot of us, you know, somewhere in that range. That team is probably mostly under twenty five. You know, uh, and getting into that first World Cup, you know, and then you know being able to host in ninety four, which is so huge to the development and the whole thing. You know, a lot of those guys were going to make that team again for sure. You know, they were they were you know, basically shoe-ins, which made it, I think, harder for Steve, right, uh, to get in because, you know, Pete Vermes was going to be back. Erwin Aldo was going to be back. Uh, Bruce Mary was going to be back. All those guys were going to be back. So now you're fighting that tier. Uh, but that's, that's the beginning of that high-level competition, everybody pushing each other, which takes you to, you know, that next level. Knowing that there's a World Cup in the U.S. and then going to be a pro league because that was part of the whole deal, we wouldn't have gotten that World Cup if we didn't agree to – really take a pro league or make a pro league a real serious thing. Uh, so, so it really does change everything for sure. And, and Jamie, when you, you know, you told people you're playing against it, I mean, did it register with, with your family and friends or was it just kind of like that this was a big deal to me, but maybe not, not so much. No, it, 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 but it's funny, like obviously you didn't have the social media and you couldn't promote it like you normally would, but um, anybody that we talked to about it, they were like, get out of here. Really? Like mm-hmm. it, it just didn't happen. Um, you know, we were in a, a perfect situation and, and it, everything lined up, you know, and it, it's something that we, you know, we've all played many meaningful games through clubs, through high school, through college. And, and after that, but you know, that's, that was one thing, like you put that game somewhere near the top, if not at the top, just because of what it meant to United States soccer, what it meant to the soccer in that area for the club, uh, for the players that played. Um, and we went in that game looking to win, like, you know, we, we were looking to win. Um, don't let anybody tell you any different. Um, and I think fitness hurt us a little bit. Uh, we weren't trained at the level they were, but, uh, you know, it was, it was certainly a fun time for all of us and something that will be at the top of all our, our soccer stories as we get older. Well, some of them we grew up playing with, like, uh, like some of the guys we knew from South, from New Jersey. I know like Miola and, and uh, Harks and all those guys, they all played in New Jersey. So a lot of us knew about those guys and had played against them, at, whether they were college scrimmages or, or through club growing up. So, you know, for the guys who were somewhat local, we knew, you know, we could compete with them if, if we had to do it for one game. Yeah, for sure. When all the Harks, all those guys, they were all on TV afterwards and it was very much like, I played against that guy once. Right? <laughs> that guy. Tab, of course, Pete Vermes coaching at Kansas City. I mean, just – uh, amazing. And Greg, you were at the game, you know, what do you remember being there and, uh, what, what was it, uh, you know, how was it presented to you at the time? I mean, did you, did you, did you kind of get what was going on and why this was basically a once in a lifetime kind of thing? 
Yeah, because the, the year before they played um, that Russian team at Veteran Stadium, and I remember going to that game, you know, and that was like, uh, not a Veteran Stadium, sorry, Franklin Field. Um, and Franklin Field was packed for that game, you know. So I remember being like 50 rows up Franklin Field watching the U.S. team play um, on turf, you know. And then the very next year, here we are. Like, I mean, I was sitting in the front row. I mean, me and my buddies, we were there like two hours before the game watching the warm-ups, you know. Like, um, it was a pretty cool thing to see. You know, like towards later the game, my buddy's dad's like, hey, you guys should go down the field and get some autographs. And we we're like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, just go down, go, go down. So literally it was like the last 10 minutes were going, we were standing behind the goal. We were like ready to go. And there was like 15 or 20 kids with us. So as soon as that clock t- hit zero, like we were sprinting on the field and grabbed as many guys as we could to get autographs. I mean, like that's, that, again, it was one of those things that just like never happens, you know, like there would, there, it would never happen again. And that was, it was a huge moment, you know, and not just watching some of the UGH guys who I'd eventually, you know, play against and some of the guys that even coached me and I'd run into here and there. It was cool looking back at that game and saying, Oh man, like I watched you play the national team, you know, and here I, here I am, you know, hanging out with you after a game, you know, it was just a, it was a cool, cool experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, I, I've been to so many soccer games. I don't remember, but the ones that, the U the U S men's national team games I've been to um, the U S women's national team games I've been to. Those are the ones that those are the games that kind of stand out anyway, just because even if it's a friendly, it's just cause you're like, Oh, that was, you know, Stu Holden's first game or that was, you know um, you know, you just have certain, Oh, you know, someone scored a goal. That was their only ended up being their only goal in their, you know, national team career. Like there's something about those games that just anyway, are they, they, they kind of take on, um, kind of a life of their own anyway. So to me, like that, that's where that kind of st- struck me is that, you know, that was a U- U.S. men's national team game and it was a local game and it was a local team as well. So the, the, the you know, the idea that you would, you know, you, you know, sort of have these, these, these games would be memorable games if it was just the U.S. men's team playing, like you've mentioned, playing Russia, uh, a Russian team at, at, um, at Franklin Field, like you would remember that anyway. But for Bob and for Jamie, you guys not only remember it, you were in the game, you were playing in the game um, and, be, and being part of that. Uh, so, 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 yeah, to me, like, that would seem like it would, like maybe you would have been at the game anyway, right? But you're actually in the game playing, uh, playing in the game. Um, and, uh, you know, Jamie, you mentioned you guys wanted to win. I mean, it was, it, it was there, right? I mean, what, what, what do you remember about the game and, and, and kind of uh, thinking like, hey, we, we, might, we might be able to, to, to get a result here? I remember uh, it was funny, like just warming up and looking like, dude, that's Harks over there. Like, like, cause you, you look up to them cause they're all, they're all the, on the national team, but at the same time, you're going to hack the heck out of them to win a ball. So like once the game started, that stuff didn't matter. But I just remember uh, the atmosphere was so awesome. Like the, there were so many fans, they were so excited. Um, and it was just fun. I, my personal memory is I, I hit the crossbar off a header off a header. And I'm like, if I had scored that goal, I would have walked off the field. I would have been done. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's the one thing I remember. Mule and I went up for a corner kick, and I headed it through his hands and hit the crossbar, and I was like, that was my chance. <laughs> yeah. So, for me, it just, you know, just the start of the game, trying to get, you know, get your breathing down, get the game under control. And just at that time, they're so good. They're out fighting. You know, they're all fighting for positions. Like, 
Chris Henderson's in. He doesn't usually start, so he's looking to obviously make the team fight for a spot. And these guys are flying around the field, and they're creating chances. And uh, our goalie, uh, Paul Zimmer, makes a couple big saves to kind of keep us going. And uh, and then the atmosphere, the noise, just it, you know, it was a little very a lot of chaos in the beginning. But then we settled down. You know, they didn't score, and uh, there's obviously <laughs> that brings some confidence. And uh, and then all of a sudden we kind of connect, uh, started connecting passes. We were we were good. We could keep the ball with with pretty much anybody. Uh, we were athletic to get up and down the field, and we could attack. We could really attack. Uh, I would say we probably only had myself, Steve Friend, maybe Jimmy McCourt were the only three real defenders on the field. Jamie, you know, playing in the midfield. I mean, he's a true forward, and he's like starting in the midfield, I believe, in that game. So, yeah, we were out there not to sit in or anything like that. We put our top guys out there and wanted to get after it. So it really became a back-and-forth game. Uh, you know, a lot of you know the chances were few and far between for us, but we did get a couple uh, that you know, what you know, on a different day could have went in. That's for sure. Yeah, there was uh, that that one uh, one ch- chance in particular you mentioned in in, in the series, Greg. Yeah the um, the Serban the Serban shot right that was uh, yeah. one of the ones that Bob was talking about, and then. And then you know, Billy, Bob's brother, is like the one who's sending me all the videos of like highlights, you know, and it was like, you know, five or six of them were guys whacking Ramos, but then he starts sending, <laughs> you know, some of these shots. And there was a shot that was in the article that, you know, wasn't the one that Servin was talking about, you know, so there's that video is out there somewhere. So, you know, when Jamie's talking about heading off the crossbar, you know, I haven't seen that video yet either, you know, so it's like, you're talking about four or five good chances in this game to beat the national team and um man that's that's what a what a what a feeling you know great well i appreciate your time guys thanks so much thank you guys all the best thanks good seeing you again thank you so much yep